1 John chapter number 2, and we're going to catch just the last two verses of this chapter, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. So 1 John chapter number 2, and uh, aren't you thankful to be in the Lord's house tonight? A lot of places that we could be of our own choosing, and then there's a lot of places that we could be if it wasn't for the sure mercy and grace of God. And we ought to be thankful tonight to be in the Lord's house. 1 John chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 28. We're going to read without break down to uh, verse number 10 of chapter 3. So I want you to read with me. The Bible says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him. He cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you would be glorified in the service. Pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truths of your word that have been so evidently set forth among us. Lord, help us to apply them, Lord, not just in an intellectual and academic sense, but through submission to the Holy Spirit in a practical and effectual sense in our hearts and lives. Father, we love you. We don't love you because of who we are, but we love you because you first loved us and cared for us and sent your Son to die for us. So tonight, let us as bond slaves submit ourselves to your Word and your leading and your Spirit. We'll be sure to give you the glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we read through 1 John 2 and 3, uh, I will go ahead and readily tell you that we are covering what is probably one of my favorite portions of Scripture in the entire Word of God. And uh, you may have noticed, you may not, but I have probably preached on these uh, first three verses in 1 John chapter 3 uh, more than just about any other portion of Scripture uh, while I've been here at Walridge. And it's because of how dear it is to me. But I'm going to do my best tonight to not just preach some thoughts that I've given you before, but to stay in the vein of what we've been doing in the sense of giving you why these truths are here, why John wrote them, the impact that they had to this group of believers, and the impact that it has to us today. Now, I'm not going to labor you with a bunch of review. We've been reviewing for weeks now, but you know the situation. You know about Gnosticism. You know about Docetism. You know about the heresies. 
And John is dealing with one heresy in particular in the portion of Scriptures that we've read. And it's this idea of moral superiority, this notion that we do not sin. Now, some of you are saying, but John already dealt with this in chapter 1, and John did deal with it in chapter 1. But could I say to you tonight that John is not simply defending the truth that we're all sinners, but in this passage he is reconciling this truth with the justification that is in Jesus Christ and with the reality of what we see around us. Now, notice what it says in verse number 28. He's been speaking about truth, and he's been speaking about the importance of truth in the life of the believer and abiding in the Lord. And he says, Abide now, little children, or and now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I chose to start at this verse tonight because it's actually a natural break in verse number 28 because the use of this phrase, little children, uh, is a general and broad terminology that John is using. He uses the term little children elsewhere, but he uses it in a specific way about believers that are immature in their walk with the Lord. But when he uses it here in verse number 28, the connotation that he's giving is of the entire family of God. Uh, The very same way that he says in chapter number 2, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That didn't have any particular application to Christians that are just newly matured in the Lord. But when he says little children in chapter 2 and verse 1, he's speaking of the entire family of God. It's a term of endearment, just as we might look at someone and say, I love them like my own child, or that person's like family to me. And so John is really beginning a new thought process in verse 28 of chapter 2. And he begins with the sure and steadfast truth. And I was sitting there thinking about it uh, whenever we were having the offering. There was one for uh, announcement that you let me forget tonight, that you never let me forget. The Lord's coming back. And I guess we can say we didn't forget it because we remembered it before the final amen. But I thought about that as I was sitting there. And John begins to speak about this truth that the Lord is returning and that there will be an accountability when he does. You know, the Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know that word appear, we find it all through the word of God. And there's another Bible word that parallels it, and it's the word manifest. When he's saying we must all appear, he's not merely saying it like a court appearing, but he's saying we're all going to be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says that there's nothing that is truly done in secret. The Lord knows all things, and one of these days every bit of it's going to be brought into the light. And so what is John saying here? He's giving them a twofold comfort. One of them is he is saying this. These people that live in sin but have a religious attitude about it, these folks that claim that they're Christians but you can tell by their life that God is the least of concern on their mind, John says there's coming a day when they're going to have to answer for it. But he's giving an exhortation, too, to us that are saved. And let me say that, uh, you know, most of the time as believers, we'll find that we have enough to do keeping our own garden weeded without having to go over into our neighbor's garden and uh, pick apart whatever fruit he's growing. And I think John is also saying here uh, that, in a sense, don't worry about them. You've got enough to worry about with your own self. Abide in him because there's coming a day when he's returning. And when he returns, you don't want to be ashamed at his coming. And he says in verse number 29, If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. 
Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about that here in a little while, but let me just say that some of the most perplexing verses in the Word of God are the ones that we've read tonight. And it's not perplexing like so many things that people call perplexities in the Bible and difficult. You know, people say, well, where did Cain get his wife? Uh, You know, I guess from his mama. Amen. Uh, You know, where where did he get his wife? And there's all these little questions that people like to ask. But I mean a true theologically perplexing question and verse. We're going to examine them here in a moment. But John begins to talk about the stand of the believer in verse number 1 of chapter 3. Now, why is he telling them this? Because you must remember there's a group of people that are claiming to be morally superior, even though in actuality they are practically more wicked. Uh, in, In reality, they are living in sin. But they claim that they have attained this higher religious level, and they're not, and you know, we have that today, only what people look at is they say, well, you know, that's old-fashioned, that's out of vogue, that's out of touch with the times. Uh, We deal with it today just like they dealt with it here, only uh, the, the slant or the accusation that was made was not that it was out of vogue or out of touch with the times, but that it was inferior. And this group was saying, well, you know, we have a morality that's so much greater and so much broader and so much more ethereal and enlightened than what you have that, uh, you know, yes, what, what we're doing looks like sin to you, but if you were enlightened like we are enlightened, you'd know it's not really sin. And John says, no, that's not the case. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Again, we have family language that's used. And what John is saying is this. He's talking about us. He says that we should be called the sons of God. He is showing them that there is not this us and them mentality uh, amongst people that are true believers. He's showing that those people had not attained to a higher, uh, you know, ecclesiastical level. Uh, it's not. A, it's a lot akin today to what you see in Roman Catholicism, this notion that the priest is somehow closer to God than the person that uh, sits in the pew. And John says, no, they can claim they have this greater relationship with God. They can claim they have this special revelation. But you just as they, if they've really believed and if you've really believed, we're the sons of God. There's no higher calling, there's no higher title that we could have than to be called the son of God. It's a great thing to be a servant of God. But you know, the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. There is a relationship that we have with God that is unseverable. We live in a day where, you know, uh, legally you might be able to disown your child or they might be able to disown you. But here's the stark reality of it. If it's your child, they're always going to be your child, like it or not. Amen. Uh, They're always going to be your child. Nothing can change that. Now, you might have someone that works for you and they mess up and they do something wrong and you fire them and they no longer work for you. But it don't work that way with your child. Once they're your child, they're always your child. I see no stronger proof of the eternal security of the believer than that simple thought. There's nothing you can do to sever that reality. For a child of God today will always be a child of God. That's the love of God manifest towards us through the person of Jesus Christ that He would give His Son that we might become sons and daughters, that we might be part of the family of God. Think of the privilege it is. Think of the privilege it is to say that I am part of God's family. He bends His ear to me when I have a need. He meets those needs once I've prayed and asked Him to do so, and many times before I've even prayed and asked Him to do so. John is speaking about this peculiar, unique, and wonderful relationship. 
But then he begins to speak about the division between this group and that group, meaning those that were docetous. And he says, therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now, I've not been doing this, but I'm going to do this uh, tonight because I think it's important. Look in chapter number 4, and I want you to look at a passage in verse number 4. And I I haven't done this, but I'm going to tonight because I think it's important. He says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He says, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's important to understand because it gives you the context to what John's really saying. He's giving comfort to these believers in that they're being persecuted. But I believe even more than that, what he is saying is this, that that worldly group, that is claiming to know so much of God and claiming to have this relationship with God, the reason they persecute you is not because they know God and you don't, it's because you know God and they don't. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's an elitist attitude. Well, if it's based upon Scripture, it's not elitist, it's biblical. And I'm not saying that every time we have a disagreement... You know, I've met some people that everybody disagreed with them. It was because they hated them and they were out of the will of God and they didn't know God. And, uh, you know, they were were just awful, terrible people. You're going to have people disagree with you. uh, And sometimes they'll be wrong and you'll be right. And then there'll be other times they'll disagree with you because you're wrong. Disagree with me because I'm wrong. And I'm not trying to make us into victims and martyrs from this passage. And God's not trying to do that either. But what He's trying to get us to understand is this that there is a true and clear division between the family of God and the family of the devil. There is a true and clear division between those that are born again and those that have never been born again. There is a clear division between God's people and the world's people. And he says, the world did not know your Savior, so it's not going to know you. It's not going to understand you. Uh, this, that word knoweth is interesting when it says it knew him not. You know what that, that literally means? It means that he was alien to them. He was foreign to them. They did not know how to take who and what he was. And certainly that is true because the Bible speaks of the love of God and says that he commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's a love that this world can't really comprehend. This world knows only a love that reciprocates. Only a love that loves because it's being loved. The love that God showed towards mankind was an alien love to this world. They did not recognize it. And so when he comes preaching these things, here they are terrified he's going to dismantle their religion that they put their faith in. Not understanding that he was a, not a religion, he was a revelation. He was not coming to try to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. But because they did not know God, they did not know that. Because they were not willing to listen to him, they could not know God. And because they did not know God, they could not know him. You see, the truth that is being passed along to us here is this, that there are definitely two families of people in this world. And everybody in this world falls into one of two categories, either lost or saved. 
There's a lot of other categories and labels that are important. You know, I'm not against labels. I've heard people say sometimes, well, you know, we just ought to get rid of all the labels, you know. they got labels on their, uh, you know, rat poison at the house. I don't think they want to get rid of those. Labels are important. I'm not, I'm not saying there's no place for labels. But I am saying this, that at the end of the day and in the broad spectrum of things, there are basically two labels, and that's either lost or saved. It's not to say the other labels don't matter. But none of them matter quite as much as those two labels, lost or saved. He says this, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now again, why is John saying this? Well, you have to remember, part of the persecution that these Gnostics were inflicting upon this little church was to tell them, well, one day you'll be enlightened enough to understand. You follow us, you listen to our teachings, and one day you'll attain to where we've attained. John says, no, beloved, now are we the sons of God. It's not a matter of enlightening, it's a matter of accepting. Uh, It's not a matter of enlightening, it's a matter of indwelling. And he's saying this status that they're trying to get you to strive for means nothing. You're a child of God, and you're a child of God right now if you put your faith in it. But then John faces the reality of the accusation. The reality of the accusation was this. This group was saying, if you believed like we did, then when you sinned, it wouldn't be sin for you. It's not sin for us. But it is sin for you, and you're exceedingly sinful. What does John say? He says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. John spent the first half of the book basically convincing them that they're sinners, that all men are sinners. But how does this reconcile with this idea that in verse number 29 where it says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And you can almost imagine them scratching their heads as they're reading this because they're sitting there thinking to themselves, wait a minute, the Bible says, you know, John just got through telling us that if we say that we have not sinned, we lie and do not the truth. But then he just got through saying that if we don't do righteousness, we're not born of God. So which is it, John? John says, well, it's both. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, God is working in us and of us and through us. We're the child of God right now. But there is a prize of a high calling of God in Christ Jesus that Paul wrote about that we're pressing towards. And there's going to come a day, no matter where we're at in that journey, where we're going to achieve that, not through our own will, not through our own ability, not through our own righteousness, But he says, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, there are some that would tell us, well, you know, uh, those Christians, they just believe they can live however and get to heaven because, you know, uh, Jesus paid for all their sins. And even this past week or yesterday, I had someone say to me uh, how unjust they thought it was that, uh, you know, that a murderer or a rapist could get into heaven simply because they had accepted Christ and Christ had forgiven them. Can I say that grace does operate that way? There's no question. It's not based upon what we have done. But I think the accusation that people are leveling when they say that is this. It doesn't seem fair that you should be able to live however you want and still get to go to heaven. But John answers this when he says in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 
I remember hearing Brother Roloff say one time, and I, and I know I've said it from the pulpit several times, but it's, it's good, so I'll keep saying it. Uh, he said, you know, after I got saved, he said, I, I, I drink as much as I want to. He said, I cuss as much as I want to. He said, I, I go out to the bars as much as I want to. He said, the difference is God changed my want to. And I will say this, well, I don't believe that any of us are sinless. And I don't believe that any of us will be sinless until either we go to Jesus or Jesus comes to us. I do believe that a child of God will have a desire, inborn from the Spirit of God, to do right. doesn't mean we'll always listen to it. doesn't mean we'll always obey. But there is a Spirit of God that lives within us, that is guiding us, directing us, and chastising us to live right and to act right and to be right. Now, I want to address these verses very quickly. These are the verses that many struggle with. He says in verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. We're okay this far. For sin is the transgression of the law. We're doing all right this far. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. No problem there. And in him is no sin. We know that. Verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Well, now, wait a minute. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now we've got into some things that are going to take some explaining. And the best way that I can tell you to do it, and we can't really... Well, we can do a little bit of it tonight. Look in chapter 1. And notice the way John says this. In verse number 7, and the reason I'm walking you through this is because I'm taking you through some of the instances in which John uses the word sin or a variation of it. He says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Now, there's several applications of that. One of them is this, that the blood of Jesus Christ is able and is effectual in cleansing us from any type of sin that we might commit. He cleanseth us from all sin. Another understanding we might have is that he, when we confess our sins, He cleanses us exhaustively of those sins. In other words, when we come to the Lord and we ask Him to forgive us, no matter what that sin is, no matter how many times we've committed it, He'll forgive us. We could take it to mean that the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin in that we will never sin again. But John keeps us from believing that in verse number 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse number 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And we talked about this when we first got started in our study, that John is talking about two things here. When he says, if we say that we have no sin, what he's saying is if we claim that we have no sin nature. If we claim that we are not by nature sinners. And then when he says in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, he's speaking of sin as far as people's practice, that they have never committed a sin. And he says, no, they may say they've never committed a sin, but we know that they have. But we just read in chapter number 3 where he says to us in uh, verse number 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, If any man sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father. What is John saying? John is speaking of sin in two different connotations here. And I'm not going to get into, you know, like I always joke, I I don't have trouble with English. I'm not going to get into a bunch of Greek. I do understand there are different tenses in Greek and aortus and present continual. And, I, you know, I'm aware of that. But I think even without trying to run to a concordance, we can understand what this means. And I think we can understand it because of what is said to us in verse number 8. He says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. You see, when he's speaking of sin in verse number 7, verse number 6, when he's speaking of sin in verse number 8, he's speaking of sinning as a way of life, as a habit, and as a continual activity. You say, how do you know that? Because he gives us the definition for that type of sin in verse number 8 when he says, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. You see, what he's trying to get us to understand is people that live a life of continual sin without chastisement, the reason they can do that is because their father is the devil, and look at the way he sinned, he sinneth from the beginning. So we see in verse number 6 and verse number 8 that the sin that's being spoke of is a continual, habitual life of sin. This unlocks all of these verses. Because as soon as we understand, and when I say unlock, I'm not trying to say it like, oh, I gave you some kind of key piece of information that you can only get from me. You can read your Bible and see it right there, that that's the context of what John is saying. Else why would he have said, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father? Now, how could we have an advocate with the Father? How could we know him as our Father if in verse number 6 he says, uh, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him? So he must be talking about sinning other than just maybe one action, maybe two actions, maybe even a multitude of actions in our life, but with chastisement from God. And what he's trying to get us to understand is this. We see it there in verse number 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He says in verse number 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So this is the basic truth I want you to grasp in this very moment. That as he talks about sin in chapter number 3, he's not saying you're never going to sin. And he's not saying if you know God, you're never ever going to commit a sin. What he's saying is you're never going to commit yourself to sin. It's never going to become a habitual part of your life. Can I say to you, we all sin, we all mess up. But there's something wrong when we can live in sin and it doesn't bother us. There's something wrong. The child of God cannot live in sin on a continual basis. I heard this story told, and I'm probably going to mistell this because I am not by any means a gardener. But I heard the story told that uh, uh, back in uh, the early 1900s in California, all they really had in the way of orange trees was just uh, little seedlings. And all of a sudden, then somebody brought over a uh, Washington naval orange tree. And they wanted to graft this orange tree in with the other ones so that they would have continual oranges and better oranges. And so they took and they uh, cut some cuttings off of that Washington orange tree and they grafted it in to that seedling, that California orange tree. And one day, the fellow that was telling the story said he was talking to a man. He was out in an orchard, and he asked that man, he said, does this tree ever bear seedlings? And he said, no, it never bears seedlings, only Washington oranges. 
And he looked down, and at that very moment, he saw sprouts springing up from seeds. And he said, but what are these down here at the base of the tree? And he says, oh, those are from before the graft. He pulled out his pocket knife, and he knelt down, and he cut them off. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans about us being grafted in a spiritual sense into the nation of Israel. Being grafted. We have had a new nature grafted into us when we got born again. There's new fruit. There's new appearance. There's new leaves. We're a new creature. But there's still a nature from before the graft. And there's still sprouts that try to spring up. Our old man is not gone. He's still there. You say, I thought he was nailed to the cross. Well, that's your choice. Because Paul said, I die daily. Paul said, every day I have to nail that old man to the cross. Every day I have to crucify him. Every day I have to make that determination and that decision. And what John is saying here is this. He's saying, those that are the children of God, they're not going to bloom nothing but sinful fruit. Oh, they'll still be sprouts. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We're still going to sin. We're still going to do wrong. But it's not going to be a way of life to us. Why is he telling them this? He's telling them this because there were two groups in their experience. There was a group they were in that was saved and keenly aware when they did sin. And the other group that was lost and completely oblivious to their sin. Can I say that even this very day there are two groups today in this world. Those that are saved and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit keenly aware when we do sin. And those that are lost and blindly oblivious to the fact that they ever sin. John is teaching us that there are two different families here. And I just want to touch on these and then we'll close. He says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, can I say to you that the sure way that we can keep sin out of our lives is by abiding in him. Now, I believe the connotation that John is giving is he's saying if we are in him in the sense of salvation, he's in us in the sense of salvation, then we're not going to live a life of habitual sin, not without chastisement. But let me say also that Christ spoke of abiding in him in John chapter 15 and bearing fruit. And when he spoke that, he was speaking it to believers. And so I believe if we abide in him, it'll help us to keep from allowing those old sprouts to spring up. He says in verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. Why did he say that? Because there was some trying to deceive them. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Now, where do we find that phrase, doeth righteous, again? In verse number 29 of chapter 2, where he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Not saying everybody that can do a righteous act, but he's saying you can't live saved unless you are saved. You may be able to live like a church member, and not be saved. You may be able to have people fooled. You may be able to keep your hypocrisy up. But you can't truly live a righteous life except that you've had the righteousness of Christ robed upon you and the righteousness of His Spirit inborn within you. It's basic and plain language. And he says in verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, why did he say that? He said that because he's wanting us to understand that lost folks have no capacity to do anything but wrong. 
Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, they give to charity. Yes, they do, but they do out of selfish reasons. Well, they love and take care of their family, and they do, but they do it out of selfish reasons. There's a lot of Christians that do those things out of selfish reasons, too. But a lost person does not have the capacity to do things for the one great and chief and grand purpose for which God created him. You say, what is that purpose? The book of Ephesians teaches us that that great and grand purpose of our life, of our existence, is to be under the praise of his glory. And a lost man cannot do anything, do anything to glorify God because he's spiritually dead and he's lost and undone in his sins. So he does not have that capacity. But when Christ came and died in our place on Calvary, he came that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we can be born again. And that grapple hold that the devil thought he had on us, if we put our faith in Christ, though we were dead, will be quickened together with him as the book of Ephesians chapter 2 says, and then we'll have the capacity to do what's right and to do what's righteous. He's trying to show us this clear distinction between them and this group that was persecuting them. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Well, what is that seed? Well, some people would say that seed is the gospel, but I do not believe so. I believe that seed is the word of God. It abideth within you. You say, well, what if I don't know much of the Word of God? You ever had a moment when you were uh, witnessing to someone or talking to someone, encouraging them in the Word, and all of a sudden you started quoting Scriptures that you don't even remember learning? But at some point, the Holy Spirit of God had grafted that into your heart and mind. And I'm not talking about some kind of supernatural act, but I'm saying you read it. You know, the brain's a computer. I mean, you know, some of you have, you know, 500 gigabytes. Me, I'm lucky for a kilobyte. Amen? You know, it's a, it's a computer. Stuff is input in it. It never leaves it. I know you think it does, but it's not that anything's left it. It's that your filing system broke down. Amen. It's it's still there, and the Holy Spirit of God is able. You say, uh, well, give me Scripture, chapter and verse. Uh, the psalmist said, let me hide thy word in my heart. I might not sin against thee. That's the seed. The word of God within our hearts brought to bearing by the Spirit of God that indwells us. It's not to say we never do wrong, but it's to say when we do wrong, that seed lets us know, that Word lets us know. Finally, in verse number 10, and we're done, he says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. I'm not going to try to explain into or explain away anything from that verse. I think if God wanted to say it different, he would have said it different. God is saying this, people that live in unrepentant sin without chastisement, it's because they're not a child of his. Every, the Lord loveth every son whom he chasteneth. He chasteneth all of his sons. The Bible says uh, that uh, any, any man that the Lord uh, doth not chasten, he, you know, that they are a bastard child, not a son. The Lord chasteneth all of his sons, every single one of them. That's what the book of Hebrews chapter number 12 says. He chastens all of them. If a person lives in unrepentant sin without chastisement, it's because they're not one of his. Now you say, well, you know, preacher, that's negative. No, that's just what God says. I'm not going to try to explain it away. God said it like it needed to be said. By the same token, if a man can live right with God, he can only do it because God dwells within him. It's the only way. 
you see someone that's been faithful to the Lord, that's lived for the Lord, that's won people to Christ, that's served the Lord faithfully for many, many years, he's not done it in and of himself, but he's done it because the Spirit of God lives within him. So John is trying to draw our attention to these two families and to help us to understand that there's a reason the world hates and persecutes us. For the same reason the world hated and persecuted the Lord of glory. The world didn't know him, and the world does not know us.